today's episode, The Firearms of John Moses Browning. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Nathan Gornstein, author of The Guns of John Moses Browning, The Remarkable Story of the Inventor Whose Firearms Changed the World, published uh, or to be published by Scribner, May 25th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for the invite. So first, um, how did you get into studying uh, this subject and writing a book on it? Well, I actually started researching another book, uh, and for that book, I had to learn something about firearms, and I didn't know much. So I went out and bought a very inappropriate kind of a old, not a, it was a, a replica, a single action army, 45 Colt. Mm-hmm. And that was the worst thing to learn on. It's this massive old Colt six shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the course of doing that, I sort of went down internet rabbit holes and I got interested in Browning and went to look for a biography of him. Because the more I sort of researched firearms, the more I realized how important he was to the development of modern weaponry. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't one. There was a, there's a sort of biography. It's very nicely written, uh, by his son from the 1950s that, uh, has all the good stuff taken out, as one family member said. Hmm. And it was sort of a, he, he did an interesting oral history thing in print and made up or reconstructed a lot of conversations. And I found Browning fascinating, fascinating, both where he came from, what he did, and his enormous influence of, you know, the people say, well, what did he do? And, I'll, I'll, and when I, and people don't get this when I say it, but every battle American troops fought, on land or in the air, was fought with Browning's firearms in World War II. Mm-hmm. So every aircraft, B-24s, B-17s, fighter planes, P-51s, were all used as 50 caliber machine gun. And in fact, the, the, the strategic bombing theory really was predicated on having a defensive weapon, which was his gun. So without his gun, one can argue there wouldn't even, would never have been strategic bombings bombers because there's really nothing else that could have taken its place mm. um and when you think about that it's pretty amazing and then you look at the ground troops every infantry unit was was armed with his burning automatic rifle with his 30 caliber machine gun and then of course his 1911 pistol mm. and all of a sudden you realize this one guy had an enormous impact on one seminal events of the 20th century so that prompted me there's a book on all this and who this guy was and where he came from because he was dead by then. He died in 1926. Mm-hmm. And and you're a, a journalist by trade, is that correct? Yeah, by trade, I I was a reporter and editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, mm-hmm. and I actually did uh, politics and sort of investigative stuff. But I've always done things with my hands. I've, I've, we we built an old sailboat and I built a couple of wood dinghies and little furniture and. And so one of the things that interested me and one of the reasons, well, actually the original reason was I wondered how he invented all this stuff. Uh, I mean, I was interested in the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. How did one man invent everything from a, a single shot rifle to a 50 caliber machine gun, mm-hmm. shotguns, pistols? And he invented, um, the slide action pistol that we know today. Mm-hmm. Um, that was his, so sort of the modern, semi-automatic firearm is a burning invention from 1896. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been revised, but it's fundamentally the same mechanism. So I originally um, 
got deep into the mechanisms of everything. And I went through three different book proposals because the first mm -hmm. one was way too mechanically oriented. And, and uh, an agent who declined to take the book said, you need to write a social history. And he was right. And so I ended up doing a, a history of the man in his times mm -hmm. and eliminated the, the sort of mechanical technical stuff to a relatively small portion of the book. Um, um, and it's been well received. People have called it very readable, which is good because the critics of my original proposals were right that it was too, they were, I was originally too technical. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, the publisher sent me a, a an advanced copy and, um, yeah, it looks really interesting from what I'm seeing. And, and I, and I want to ask is it, it doesn't seem to be just about him. It seems to also look at the gun industry at the time and, and through. Yeah, it takes a look at the sort of the impact of firearms through Browning's uh, inventions. Mm -hmm. The reason why Browning was so significant, as as he himself would concede it, uh, was that he was the right man at the right time. He had a natural uh, gift for invention, but he could use that because of technological advances at the time. At the same time, he sort of reached the peak of his inventive abilities. What were they? When was that? It was uh, 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, first decade, when um, smokeless powder came in. And I'll show you, you read people who, who are on the air can, uh, people who, I'm sorry, watching the video can see the difference and I'll explain it. Mm -hmm. One of these is a black powder round, mm -hmm. a 45 caliber pistol round. And this was, you know, the famous six shooter from, uh, let me hold it up this way. The famous six shooter round from Colt's single action army, 1873. Mm -hmm. And this is the round from Browning's famous 1911 pistol. And it's about a half inch shorter. And yet both had the same uh, velocity and the same power. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened was when Browning could had these new advances, he, it allowed him to use his imagination to create firearms no one had ever made before because he, he had that the, there was um, gunpowder smokeless powder it was uh, metallurgy and it was machine tools um, guns of course are made of steel and the closer the better the machining and the more precise and the more complex machining you can make the better mechanisms you can make mm -hmm. and all those things enabled browning to to um, make full use of his creative gifts mm -hmm. and, and I guess one of the main points or maybe one of the more interesting points is that he wasn't uh formally educated in any of this no he he uh he was born in 1855 in uh, what was then at the frontier town of ogden utah his uh father and mother were members of the church of the latter-day saints mormons so browning was the son of his father's second wife and browning's brother who was also important in his career matt was his um, brother of the same wife. Then a third brother was a half-brother. It gets complicated with all the marriages. The third brother who was involved, intimately involved in the business was um, was um, by the name of Jonathan Edward Browning. And he was the wife, he was, I'm sorry, the child of Browning, of the father's third wife. Hmm. But yeah, so Browning um, lifts, was educated in a one-room schoolhouse, left at around what would it be equivalent of age 15 now or grade eight, but he got a mechanical education working with his father because his father was a blacksmith and gunsmith and had done some interesting uh, innovations himself. Hmm. 
But, you know, there were a lot of brothers who worked in the shop, sometimes off and on. Only one really became a, a, a was, was a genius gun designer, and that was Browning. He had the ability to think in three dimensions mm-hmm. uh, and imagine concepts, mechanical concepts in his head. And the, the best way I can explain that is to think of solving a Rubik's Cube. It has, um, you know, uh, uh, six sides with 54 different blocks on the side. And when you do it, you're twisting it in your hand and you're using your eyes to figure out which way to do it. Well, Browning could do that in his head. He could manipulate the cube, the, 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 the sides of the cube to solve it. He also, beyond that, he could have done a couple at the same time. So um, I'll, I'll read you a, a, a quote from, um, well, then before I do that, let me continue with just what he did. So he could conceive of mechanisms in his head. He never used blueprints. He did rough sketches as he was thinking through his designs. But as his brother said, they were sort of his own sh- visual shorthand. They weren't a sketch that you or I could have done anything from. And he would, he would conceive of this thing, of these mechanisms in his hand. One of his uh, granddaughters told me her mother used to complain that he would come visit them in the house and he would spend all night going like that, thinking. And the driver crazy, she said. He just sat there thinking. And he would think of these 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 uh, me- mechanisms in his head. But to translate into steel, eventually it was the job of the brother, Ed, um, the third brother. Mm-hmm. Browning, and this is something that folks candidly didn't understand until my book came out because I had access to um, documents and found legal documents and family letters the family gave me that explain how all this worked. So this is new information. Mm-hmm. What would happen is that the actual meta work was done by his brother, Ed. Mm-hmm. John would stand over Ed's shoulder and tell him what to do. So let me take, I'll, I'll run through a process. He invents a, a, the 1911 pistol, for example, mm-hmm. or he invents his first, let me take a simpler one. He invents the slide action pistol, mm-hmm. which is this thing right here. This is, the first mass-produced, enormously successful slide-action pistol made by FN in France uh, went into production in 1899, and by the time it was stopped making it in France, they had made three-quarters of a million of them by 1914, mm-hmm. though it kept getting copied by the Chinese and Koreans and um, Afghans. In fact, there were these there were still copies being made in some of the tiny factories and places. <laughs> but... Ronnie would think through the process. He would, and and once he had the, the mechanism in his mind, he'd, he'd cut out templates from cardboard, sheet metal, and see how they interacted to help help him finalize it. Mm-hmm. And then once he had the design in his head, he'd sit down with his brother, Ed, and he'd start making the stuff in metal. But Ed would actually do the machine work. But I think Ed maybe should get a little more credit than he has because if you are essentially being the being the, the technician on a job anyone who's ever done that kind of work knows that you have input you know that's not going to work this is going to work let's try this and and i'm sure ed actually invented some firearms himself from none nearly as successful as his half brothers i'm sure ed had a role in it too mm-hmm. i'm speaking with nathan gorenstein author of the guns of john moses browning you can find more information about his work at nathangorenstein.com If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. 
So were they, when they were manufacturing these guns, were they doing it, you know, were they sort of tailor-made? Were they doing them in small batches? Or were they preparing for mass production, hoping to sell it? Yeah, they, um, Browning only made one gun himself. It was his original single-shot rifle, which was designed to take the military contract of the time, which is just called the 4570 round, about two and a half inches long, black powder round. Mm-hmm. And that was a very successful single-shot rifle. And he and his brothers set up a little factory in the shop in Ogden and made about five or 600, the exact numbers I've known. And Browning found he didn't like making guns. He liked inventing things. Hmm. So fortunately for him, uh, a Winchester, uh, probably it was a Winchester salesman, came across the firearm at the same time that the Winchester company was looking for some a firearm to operate, to, to handle this cartridge. It was the most powerful commercially available black powder cartridge made and because it was a military cartridge it made it relatively cheap and widely available mm-hmm. but the existing rifles in the winchester line couldn't handle them because they were designed they didn't have sufficient strength to handle the recoil so the single action one did and so winchester purchased it and from then on browning only designed firearms he with his brother would make a prototype mm-hmm. they'd send the prototype off to the factory and they would blueprint it make whatever changes were necessary for mass production and produce the guns themselves. So for most of his life, uh, Browning actually wasn't very well known in America. Hmm. It wasn't until he was in his mid-60s during World War One that he became a semi-household name because until then, in America specifically, his guns, were, his rifles and shotguns were made by um, Winchester, his pistols were made by Colt, and then Remington got in the action, made, making shotguns. And Browning only became sort of a national figure when the Army in 1917-1918 adopted two of his guns for use in World War II, the Browning automatic rifle and the Browning 30 caliber machine gun. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Browning literally ended up in the front page of newspapers. But he was in the seventh decade of his life. He was an old, with all due respect, Browning. He was an old guy by then. Um, still inventing, still very sharp. But uh, but until then, he was relatively unknown, except in Europe. That was a different story in Europe. What uh, what was it about his designs that made them stand out from others? He had, starting from his very first single action rifle, he had the ability to produce small, elegant, simplistic, strong, reliable designs. That's a, a lot of different things. And usually it's not, usually one inventor can't do all of that, but Browning did. His, for example, his first design, his single action rifle, was much smaller in size, the metal action, the, the part of the action that holds the cartridge and the firing pin and the uh, trigger and the like, was probably half the size of the competing rifles out there. And it did everything with one move of the lever, unlike other single shot rifles out there at the time. And that ability he had continued through. So when he, um, when he designed his, um, the next very successful gun he designed was what was called the best lever action rifle of its time. Uh, he used some of the same ideas in the single action rifle and produced a, a relatively small, light, elegant, original design that could handle this massive cartridge mm-hmm. in a lever-action rifle. And it was it's a, it's a piece of brilliant design. 
And, and that's what he could do. He did it with his machine guns. Um, I'll tell you a story about the difference between his famous 30 caliber machine gun. It's the one you see in all the war pictures of the guys in the infantry, not the big 50 caliber. Mm. Um, but that, the, the, the sort of key mechanism is in that, which moves the, the cartridges to and from the chamber has one quarter of the parts, not, not even fewer than the competing Maxim gun, Vickers gun. Mm-hmm. And so Browning was able to take, he didn't invent the machine gun, the recoil operated machine gun, but he invented the cheapest, simplest, most reliable one around. In fact, when the English, the British were designing new fighter planes, the Hurricane and the Spitfire in the 1930s, they had to decide what firearm to put in them. And the two of the contenders were the Vickers, which was the standard British machine gun, and the standard American light machine gun, the Browning 30 caliber. And they chose a 30 caliber, even though they had to redo it to take the British cartridge, because the Browning 30 caliber was, was much more reliable than the Vickers, because if the gun jams and it's in the wing of the airplane, there's not much you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And those, I mean, the British historians will attribute that decision one to use eight machine guns in those fighter planes because it shot a relatively small 30 caliber bullet mm-hmm. and to use the Brownings as the reason why the English won the Battle of Britain. Because as English historians say, fighter plane is great, but unless it has effective machine guns, it's useless. Mm-hmm. And there was a very brief period of time where the eight Browning 30 caliber machine guns could outgun the Luftwaffe's planes. It was only for a few months. And it's only, fortunately, coincided with the Battle of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, the Germans realized they were getting, their planes were vulnerable, and they added armor to their bombers and fighters, and they increased the armament in their fighter planes. But the Brits did the same. They mm-hmm. the, they ended up replacing, over time, the 30 caliber machine guns with 20 millimeter cannons. So, um, I don't know if you studied this for the book, but what what inventors out there, if if Browning hadn't, done what he did what what inventors were in line that didn't make it but might have yeah. you know that's an interesting question <laughs> and it, it's not easily answered a lot of people try and invent firearms um and in between the two wars there wasn't much government money going into firearms testing in america firearms testing and inventing so in america there really wasn't anything else in the pipeline in terms of 30 caliber and 50 caliber machine guns. If it hadn't been for Browning, the best guess I have, and I can stand corrected because there's all, there's an, I mean, there's an enormous firearm history out there, and despite all my research, I'm sure I don't know all of it. But as far as I can tell, there wasn't any other contender in America for those kind of caliber machine guns that would be used by infantry and, and, um, a- aircraft. There were other inventors by the late 1930s who had come up with automatic rifles, like the Browning automatic rifle, sort of as a light, a small unit um, support weapon. And a couple, one guy had, in particular had come up with a, with a pretty good pistol. But at that point, Browning's guns were in the supply chain. They were making them. They had the ammunition. They had the tooling. They had the factories. And when you're preparing for a war, you're not going to change that unless there's a really strong reason to do it, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't. Now, overseas, it's a different story. The um, the Brits 
and many armies in Europe, rather than developing the heavy 50 caliber machine gun, went with a 20 millimeter cannon. So that they went in a whole different direction. And the only people who were really developing a new light machine gun were the Germans, who came up with a couple of very good ones. Um, but that was done in secret in the early years of, uh, of the Nazi government in the 1930s when they were still bound by the uh, Geneva, by the um, uh, World, the treaty that ended World War II. Mm. World War One. Mm. I'm sorry. In a short, in a, in a nutshell, I don't know if there would have been any. Uh, we probably would have ended up using uh, firearms designed by the Brits, I'm mm. guessing. Mm. We did decide try and copy the German firearm at one point during the war. Um, the German machine gun, because while the Browning 30 caliber machine gun ran at about 600 to 700 rounds a minute, the German machine gun ran at about 1200, double that. Though that has its own issues. You're eating up a lot of, a lot of ammunition, which means you have to supply the ammunition. It's hard to keep on target. But apparently we screwed up the, uh, the conversion from decimal to inches. So that, that, the, the the, the prototypes they came up with didn't work. They said, screw this. But I'm not sure they would have adopted it anyway, because, you know, the American production, you know, the World War II was a triumph of American industrial might, but that industrial might was stretched very thin. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if you're going to set up a whole new, uh, they were setting up all sorts of new factory lines, which tanks, airplanes, guns, artillery pieces, and to change midway, uh, and this is a very good reason. It's unlikely to unlikely. Yeah. So um, I noticed, uh, and maybe uh, I think I, I noticed this correctly, but it looked, um, or I noted how the use of the firearms by law enforcement and also criminals, you know, added sort of to the prestige of the of the gun. How much did that affect? Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. Let me go to Europe for a second, if I might. Because um, this, the Browning's first pistol wasn't made in America. It was made by the Belgians in outside of Liège, Belgium. By the way, just so you, people see how this works, that's a slide. Mm-hmm. And that slide action mechanism is what Browning invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was working with Colt, and Colt did decide to go ahead and build one of his pistols. But not the one Browning really liked. Colt wanted to build a larger pistol for military use. But Browning really, really liked that little one. And he had a friend he had met working for Colt, who was now working for FN in Liège. And they had been in touch. And he said, why don't you come over and show us your gun? Uh, because FN had a factory that had nothing to make, a gun factory with no product. Hmm. So Browning in 18... 18- 96, just forgetting the year, 1896, went over to, um, went over to, uh, Belgium and the, the Belgians loved his gun and, um, started putting, designed it for production and made the first one in 1899, mm-hmm. revised it a little bit and introduced, introduced a new model the next year, the 18, the FN 1900. Mm-hmm. And that gun became a favorite in Europe because it was something no one there had ever seen before, which was a small little gun that you could, that not much larger than your hand, I'll show you, so people get a sense of the size. It's about that size. Mm-hmm. And it was like a little engine in your hand. And it was sort of like, I don't think it's too much to say, that era's iPhone. It was this bit of mechanical ingenuity that no one had ever seen before. It, existing revolvers, pistols were big, ungainly. 
And here comes this little piece of mechanical art. And it was so popular, they sold in a continent of about 300 million people, they sold 750,000, mm. which is about one per every 300 people, if I remember my math right. And it became a real problem in terms of um, uh, crime in France and Russia and other countries. There were a lot of anarchists at that time. It was a time of great political ferment. And this was the favorite gun, the Browning FN 1900. In fact, people said there was a, it was, its popularity among revolutionaries was proof that there was a master conspiracy because why would they all use the same gun all over Europe? And the reason was it was the best one around. <laughs> I mean, like you or I, I'm going to go risk my life and do some sort of horrible thing. I'm going to get the best gun I can get. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened was that there's a great study done in Germany about German culture before World War One, And the author notes that German culture changed from the culture of the knife to the culture of the gun. So where once an apprentice would go out, some young guy would go out and spend his money and get a knife. Now he tried to save up for a Browning pistol. And it became a real problem because people didn't realize how deadly. I mean, they understood how deadly it was in theory, but in practice, they didn't get it. And people were showing them off and it became a real uh, crime problem in for the Germans and, and, and in other parts of Europe, too, mm -hmm. because people didn't appreciate how deadly it was. And and uh, there, there was um, stories of people, you know, shoot, shooting at animals when uh, shooting from a train at animals outside and people making mistakes, killing their friends because they didn't appreciate how easy it was to use a gun. I mean, there's a thing about maybe it's men in particular that say, oh, I know how to use a gun. I, it's sort of inbred into us, but it's not. You know, guns are really dangerous and and they can go off very easily. And people didn't realize that at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also a great, there was a, a famous Parisian anarchist criminal mob in the 19, around 1910-ish that made, that made this their favorite gun too. And also, um, it, they got a lot of press at the time and also made them famous. So all that contributed to, to, uh, in Europe to Browning's fame. In America, America was still into revolvers. Browning's original pistols didn't sell all that well. I mean, Colt was making them. But um, they didn't sell nearly as uh, as quickly as the ones in Europe. So I'm th I'm thinking about some of the wars during this period and wondering if Browning's weapons were used in those like um, Spanish American War, the Boer War, maybe it's the Chinese Civil Wars. His first machine gun was. Let me take a step back in history again and say Browning was the first person to build a firearm that used gas from exploding gunpowder. To power the action. He, he didn't come up with the idea. Hiram Maxim, the guy who invented the recoil machine gun, did it. And it had been talked about by a lot of people over time, but no one had ever actually done it. And Browning in 1889 invented what in, in Ogden became called an automatic rifle. It was an old Winchester lever action rifle. He converted to fire 25 rounds, up to 25 rounds from a magazine, like a machine gun. But using the gas to, to operate a rod that operated the, the lever and the trigger. Mm -hmm. He converted that into a tripod mounted machine gun that, uh, Colt started making in 1895 and was used in the Spanish American War to a limited extent and was used by the Marines during the Boxing Rebellion in Beijing, both in the late 1890s. 
the gun had a mixed reputation at that time, uh, and it's unclear as to why. When when, when it was tested by um, the military, Browning fired at six with six thousand rounds in a row, almost melted the gun without a problem. But when it, and so it worked in theory at least. But when it went into the field, there were all sorts of people had all sorts of issues with it, and it may have been training. It also may have been that people didn't may not have fully understood that this was an air-cooled weapon. And unlike a water-cooled machine gun, which was Maxim machine gun, you just couldn't hold the trigger down and fire forever. Uh, the gun would overheat. Um, I mean, Browning's gun, I'm sure, with his test gun, was unusable after his test because of the, and the, the stresses on the gun from all the heat. So there were a lot of problems with the jamming at the wrong time. It was hard to clear once it did jam. So it wasn't all that successful initially, though later, during World War One, when there was such demand from uh, weapons that and they could, America wasn't producing enough, the gun was taken and converted for aircraft use with a cooling, where it didn't need a water jacket, and the gas mechanism was changed a bit, and it became very effective as a, as a firearm for airplanes. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was his first machine gun, and it was also actually used, and they liked it. The British in the Boer War used the 1895, and and they they enjoyed it. Um, enjoyed it. They they found it to be reliable, which makes me think it might have been a question of training uh, rather than an inherent problem with the gun. But um, after that, he invented his his uh, recoil operated machine gun, the 30 caliber that became famous. So when you say um. Uh, his guns were adapted for aircraft use. Was he doing the adaptations or were, were they taken and adapted by others? Yeah. So let me go with the, um, let me talk about the 50 caliber gun, if I might. So his 30 caliber gun, which fired around about that size, a little bigger, that's a 30 caliber rifle round. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have a machine gun round, but it was about that, a little longer than that was widely used, widely produced in World War One and widely used in World War Two. And during World War One, when tanks arrived, the uh, General Pershing was looking for an anti-tank weapon. And so he has Browning uh, and Colt, Browning at this point was working with Colt, to uh, produce a machine gun that could fire a more powerful cartridge. And Browning, in consultation with Colt and cartridge manufacturers, came up with a 50 caliber round, which is a massive thing. And Browning used the, as the basis of his design, the 30 caliber machine gun. People say he just, just, um, enlarged the existing design, but it was actually pretty complicated. And he did a lot more than that. But by 1918, he had a rough version that was, um, ready to be produced. And then the war ended and interest lapsed. Mm-hmm. Browning kept on working at it and would help from with at the Colt factory with help from Colt engineers. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he, he was no longer the guy in Ogden working by himself. He may have had the ideas, but the people who who helped him with the final development or the uh, was or the Colt engineers, in part because what he designed had to be conducive to mass production. Mm-hmm. You can design something wonderful, but if it's too intricate or the parts design can't be done by the existing machinery. It's useless. So the gun had to be designed in a way that could be built in large numbers. So the he he worked on the air-cooled version. He designed an air-cooled version, but he died before the gun was perfected. Mm-hmm. 
and the, the 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 final fixes to the recoil system to the clocking handle were done after by engineers after he died. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Nathan Gorenstein, author of The Guns of John Moses Browning. You can find more information about his work at nathangorenstein.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Did he, uh, or do you know of any designs he created that maybe people don't know about because they never went into production or something? You know, stuff you just kind of played around with that were unusual. unusual yeah, designs. well, actually, and, and there's a patent from 19, I think it's 22 or 24, mm-hmm. for what we now would consider a modern software letter quoted in my book that no one had ever seen before from Browning saying that what armies should be equipping their soldiers with are automatic weapons with an intermediate sized cartridge, which is what the M16 and the AK-47 are, and what the Germans built in World War II. Mm-hmm. And Browning said, and he designed a gun and patented actually to, for that, uh, but it couldn't interest anyone in the military with, for it at that time, which is too bad because it, it would have been very useful. Uh, had had production on that gone ahead. Mm-hmm. I presume, you know, Browning's guns worked. I mean, every once in a while they'd come up with a, something that was a little too complicated, and he had some duds out there. But most of what he made worked. Um, so he made he made a uh, prototype, which is lost, but the patent is available, and one can see it now. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting is the Browning automatic rifle, which was used in World War One and World War Two, and perhaps because it was the first gun in America with his name on it, don't forget at this point he's 63, 64, became very famous, sort of an iconic military weapon. But he had actually made it earlier. No one no one has ever really known where it came from. Sort of arrives out of the blue during World War One, when Browning shows up with it and they start making it in secret because it was it was considered so valuable, the Americans were that the Germans would capture it and reverse engineer it and turn it against themselves. Hmm. But what had happened was that Browning had invented it around 1905 and couldn't interest the military on it and put it up on the shelf. And when World War II came around, the military came to Browning and said, can you invent something? And they had it. The reason we know this is because in a 1939 letter that's in the family archives I was allowed to take a look at, his brother, Ed, the guy that did all the metal work, talked about that invention, and he said that he talked about how in 19, how when the army asked for the bar, they already had it made, and it was mm-hmm. working. It wasn't final, but essentially it came off the shelf, mm-hmm. and then was finalized and improved and put into production. So that's something. Running had a lot of stuff ahead of the times. He actually, in there's a great firearms museum in Cody, Wyoming, and in it they have 30 or 40 Browning prototypes that were never produced. Hmm. He he has 128 patents, most, not all of them for individual guns, but most of them for guns. And if I recall cor- correctly, I think only um, 25 or so were ever actually mass produced. Hmm. Don't hold me to that number. I'm suddenly blanking on it. Mm-hmm. But he invented all sorts of stuff. And uh, after his death, after the patent, well, let me rephrase that, after the patents expired, his his designs were were mined by firearm companies all over the world, yeah. and 
put guns into production. The, the Ithaca shotgun, I think it's a 37, only went into production in the 1920s or 1930s. And that used a Browning design from like 1913, a design that no one had ever made when we patented. But after the patents expired, well, Ithaca said, hey, great gun, let's go make it. And they were able to make it without having to pay royalties. Uh, and similar things happened with other things he designed and and uh, that were never put into production when they were under patent. Mm-hmm. When they were so when they were Browning still had the patent rights. Was he a big uh, shooter himself? Did he like shooting guns? Or yeah, he he, uh, he was very good actually. He uh, he really liked shotguns, and for for a decade he was trying to persuade Winchester to build a pump action shotgun. And they wouldn't. Uh, and they had him make a lever action shotgun, which is a very unwieldy gun. I mean, it's just for all sorts of reasons. It's, 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 it's not lever actions don't lend themselves to shotgun use. And so that when they fought, so in the meantime, he was, he turned out four or five and patented four or five different pump action shotgun designs. And he was a great trap shooter. Very, very good. He won regional championships, traveled around the country, trap shooting. Uh, he was also a very big hunter. He, he, uh, and what he, Brian didn't give interviews, he never gave interviews about his guns. Uh, talked to reporters a few times, what you know, of once at the beginning of World War One, and that may be the closest he ever came to an interview when, when, um, Germany, Germ- the Germans invaded Belgium, where he had friends and family, probably family. Brian may have had a relationship in Belgium that produced a child in the years. Was probably, if so, they were living there when the Germans invaded. But, um, yeah, he invented a lot of different things, not all of which went into production. Mm-hmm. So let me uh, turn to uh, the resources he used. You mentioned some archives and papers. Um, can you mention what else he used for the research? Yeah, there were, there were three or four main sources. Um, the existing sources, which, which um, I knew I, I researched as I started the book, there's an, a lot of very detailed books about the firearms themselves, which were really useful to me because part of my firearms education, but also because they reprint government documents about firearms acquisition and firearms testing, mm-hmm. which, and I thank these guys in the book. It saved me time going through the archives to find, you know, stash story in the National Archives somewhere, the, the original testing documents and the original review documents. So that was one, that was sort of the very beginning of my research. The second level was in archives in Connecticut where they had a archives from the Colt company. And I found some stuff about Browning's time with Colt that hadn't been printed before. The, um, the other place was Liège in Belgium. I spent a week in Belgium. Mm-hmm. The FN company was very, very helpful. I went through their archives for me and I got some really interesting memos about uh, their view of Browning and his brothers. And the business relationships, but the the most important two most important things were um, the Browning family's own archives. Um, the late Bruce Browning, who was Browning's grandson, unfortunately died in December uh, of 2019, was an enthusiastic supporter of the book and made sure, as I understand it, that I got to see the archives before they were processed and cataloged by Weber State University in Ogden, which is really quite an advantage for a researcher. And those archives had been sitting in Bruce's basement for half a century. 
Hmm. And it's the only existing remaining paperwork from the Browning company. And it was about 40 boxes, of which about 20 contained um, documents relevant to my book mm-hmm. on the history of the Browning, Browning brothers up to um, up to his death. And those are really crucial. I, I found out all sorts of things that no one had known before. And the, the final um, documents were two court files from a patent case involving two separate trials with George Luger, the guy that invented, sort of invented the Luger pistol, mm-hmm. had uh, filed a patent claim against Browning. Uh, Browning won it. But the result of that claim was that in 1901 and 1907, Browning, his brothers, uh, Matthew and Ed, and other associates, had to sit for legal depositions by Luger's attorneys. And the, the very long depositions, I think both were well over 100 pages, and in it is, is for the first time anyone ever knew, Browning, well, first time ever, Browning and his brothers talked about how they worked and how they invented things. Mm. And, and that forms an important part of my book because we hear in their own words how they worked. And a lot of what I've told you comes out of those, those depositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce, you know, I sent it to him shortly before he, he passed and he, you know, he was, he, he had his, he was, Bright and alert and lively to the very end. He never had, never had any decline mentally. And then, and was an inventor himself, I might add. And he, he really was thrilled at it because he said it answered all the questions he had about his grandfather that he never, no one had answers to. How did they work? Who did what? Hmm. You know, uh, and all that's in these documents along with a great story about stealing ideas. Who stole what from who? And it involves sea voyages and, and, and third parties, and it's a great story in itself, just about this Luger claim that Browning stole an idea from him. Browning then claimed Luger stole the idea from him. Yeah. Um, I, I think the likeliest result is that they both came up with the idea at different times, because Browning came up with the idea around mid, uh, eight, around 1894, maybe, and Luger came up with a similar idea around 1899, but Unfortunately for Luger, Browning had already filed patents. And I think the re- reason why Luger filed his patent claim was he was suddenly panicked and thought, well, he couldn't sell his gun in America because it used a mechanism that Browning had a patent on. Hmm. Uh, long story short, that while Browning was declared the original inventor, an appellate judge eventually decided that neither man could claim a patent on the idea because it had its roots in other ideas. And so it, it was, uh. became moot. But it created, it provided a great set of documents that was really quite fascinating. What was the uh, most surprising thing you came across in your research? Most surprising thing? I'm going to say there were probably two things. There was, well, three things I'll say. The first was the general realization of Browning's breadth of his inventions. We haven't talked about his deer hunting rifles. He, he built the, he designed the 3030. Winchester lever action rifle, which is the first smokeless powder lever action rifle rifle sold in America, mm. enormously popular, sold six to eight million of them, mm. and wow. it was one of the basic firearms that created the sort of domestic deer hunting culture. Mm. Because uh, around that time, deer were essentially extinct in North America, but people were building guns. They wanted to go hunting. There was a a, a social movement that encouraged hunting as a way for Americans to um, 
find their psychological roots. Hmm. And the result was that deer were reintroduced across America. And there's a great story in the book. In the 1890s, this, this a guy later became a great preservationist, is hunting for deer. And he says to himself, I just killed the last deer in Pennsylvania because he's hunting this deer in the winter. And he realizes that there's no other deer tracks. After three days of tracking this deer, he, he kills it. And he says, this is, there's no, I saw no other tracks. And indeed, there were states throughout the Midwest that declared deer functionally extinct uh-huh. uh, throughout much of the sort of Midwest, upper Midwest, Western states. But they came back, and they came back in part because people wanted to go deer hunting. Because remember, Browning's rifle made it very practical. It was, well, I mean, it's, it's hard to be really accurate with a rifle, but it's a lot easier to shoot his lever-action smoke the spotter rifle than it, it was to shoot a, a flint action or a percussion cap action rifle. I mean, you didn't need the training. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm con- it, it, it helped. So there was that element of it. So I didn't appreciate the breadth of his impact on the world. That was probably the most surprising thing. And the reason why I decided to write the book, because um, I said, well, this guy not, not only invented the modern handgun, he invented the machine guns that won World War II, he invented modern hunting rifles he invented modern shotguns and, and modern and, firearms and the other two items are they found in the book i'd rather people read the book if they're there <laughs> yeah. oh yeah they're all it's all in the book okay and there's, there's some very good stories in the book we don't mind my saying that I, I won't i won't give away on the air but the the luger patent fight story is really fascinating and there's there's a there's a big crime involving the family which i won't talk about on the air you got to read it mm-hmm. um and uh and and then uh, so yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty interesting book, and it's gotten good reviews for readability. Uh, I mean, uh, my my original friendly critics were right that I needed to expand the social history and and shrink the the gun mechanism history, which is what I've done. What uh, was there a question that you really wanted an answer for, and was the most difficult for you to either reach a conclusion on, or you'd still love you don't have an answer, and you'd love to know it. Um. I'd love to know what Browning would think of modern gun use. Uh, and I don't have an answer and I wouldn't attempt to speculate. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he enjoyed guns. He enjoyed shooting. He'd take his little pistol out and a couple of boxes of ammo and go up in the hills and pop away in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I, um, I do some competitive shooting and I enjoy it. I mean, it, guns are really dangerous, but if used correctly, um, used safely, that they're a real challenge to master. But I, I don't know the answer to that. The closest, you know, the, the one question people always ask is, what did he think? Why did he invent weapons of war? And 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 his answer to that, which is only in paraphrase in a newspaper article from someone who spoke with him, so we don't, I'm presuming this is correct, which was that Browning felt that essentially there were always going to be guns, and if America was going to, going to go to war, he wanted Americans to have the best ones. Um, his brother once issued a statement that said, Matthew, who was very important because he ran the business end of the business, who said that, um, as was widely believed at the time, that if you invented better weapons, it would forbid people not to have wars. Hmm. Uh, and that was in the 19, I guess, before World War One. A lot of people believe that to be true, which, of course, wasn't. But that was one of the things that Matt said in a letter and a statement he released just before World War One. Hmm. Interesting. 
Um, was there something you came across that had a strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I guess the thing that I found really fascinating was the fact that in terms of Browning's personal life mm-hmm. was that he traveled to Europe 60 something times over his life to mostly to Belgium. Mm-hmm. And his wife only came once on his last trip at the very end. And, you know, that's pretty interesting. Now, there's, a, there's some clear reasons for that. They had eight kids, and she was home raising the kids. But it is interesting to me that that was the case. Though so they, you know, so I mean, I have one letter. For, I have a couple of letters from her. One written when she was in Belgium on the last trip, where she um, describes her sort of her sort of difficulty making sense of your Europe because she came from in a small town and she's thrown into this big urban center of Belgium. But I don't know really, really what kind of relationship they had. It would be interesting to have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What, uh, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Well, the best part was finding those depositions from the, the patent suits because, you know, when you're a reporter, mm-hmm. is, when you report stories, you know, stories that don't have a lot of other people already treading the ground, is you reach one of two points. One is that you've reported it out of existence. The story's just not there. Hmm. The other point, when that's disheartening, the other point is when stories keep getting better, as we say, with the facts become more interesting. And this was one of the stories where, as I kept going, it all kept getting more and more interesting. Hmm. And when I found those those depositions, I found stuff no one knew about Browning. I mean, this, that, these, these documents are quite, if you're interested in firearms history and invention, they're quite remarkable documents. Um, the other thing that I find really interesting was that I, you know, the whole history of his breakup with Winchester is not what the history books have said. And I won't give it all away, but the, the, the history books say that Winchester wouldn't build Browning's, um, Auto 5 shotgun, which was the first successful semi-automatic shotgun that was later built by FN in Belgium because um, they didn't want to pay Browning royalties. All the other firearms he designed, he got a lump sum from them. Hmm. Um, and Browning did want royalties for a shotgun, but the reasons are a lot more complicated than that simple story and uh, and very interesting, I might add. And we have a, a first-hand or well, second-hand description of that meeting written by Jack, his son. Well, some of Jack's reconstructed stuff and, and was, and this is not in the published book. I should say that the family gave me the original manuscript, yeah. which as one family member said, has all the good stuff in it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is one of the good things that was probably taken out because at that point, the, the Browning company still existed and had a relationship with Winchester that they didn't want to aggravate. But but so in that original in his original manuscript, Jack would have heard the story from his his uncle or his father because uh, he was he he was born he was a, an adult son by then, and he describes the meeting uh, where Browning and the Winchester Company and part of was, and there's also some other documents in the book that lay out the history the financial history between the, the two and so there's a lot of good history about that. And there's a very interesting history about how Browning actually got hooked up with FN. People, the sort of books say that he went to Belgium after Winchester wouldn't make a shotgun. And that's not, he did, 
but that's not how he met, how he got hooked up with, with that fan. That happened years earlier. Um, so it's a, it's interesting. A lot of interesting stuff in the book. Okay. Um, so you mentioned a bit about, uh, the publishing side of, of getting the book published. Um, how about the writing? Was there, were there any difficulties with, uh, finishing the writing part? Well, the hardest thing about the writing was, um, and here's an, and give a shout out to my editor, Rick Horgan at, uh, Scribner's Simon Schuster. One of the difficulties with writing about Browning was that he did many things at the same time. So, for example, if you want to write about his shotgun, you know, so you invent a shotgun and it gets used over 50 years. So you want to write about the shotgun's use. But at the same time, he was inventing machine guns and pistols and you want to write about their use. Mm-hmm. So how do you combine that into something with a chronological timeline? Mm-hmm. And my original idea was not to try to be chronological, but write about one gun and write about the other gun. And Rick said, you can't do that. It has to be chronological. And that was a struggle. I mean, I came up with a way to do it, which worked, but it was a real struggle to write a, hist- a social history of Browning in his time chronologically when he invented something in this year and its impact was 20 years later. Mm-hmm. How do you, what do you do about that? And each individual issue gets solved differently. So that was a real puzzle. Mm-hmm. It was a, that was a struggle. That's it. Yeah. Was Scribner the first uh, company you sent your proposal to, or did you shop it around a little? Well, first I had a shop run for an agent. And I, by, I came up with a great one, Alice Martell, who, um, even though she's not a gun person, loved the history behind the book. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I know because of what things some people said to me that they didn't want to take on a book about firearms. Mm-hmm. I mean, the New York publishing world has its politics, which are fine, even though this is a book about history. Of firearms, really. Hmm. Uh, and, but, but Alice saw that it was, he was a significant historical figure mm-hmm. and he had been ignored by, I mean, it's sort of amazing that a guy who did all he's done is never, this is the first serious biography of him ever. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. pretty amazing when yeah. you think about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think it's a sort of a, a bias against firearms in certain elements of American society. Look, I'm not taking sides in that dispute. Mm-hmm. People can do what they want with that. Um, but Alice saw the history of it, and so did Rick Horgan at Scribner, because they were, they were the only house to uh, to make a bid for the book. Mm-hmm. And and Rick has is a guy, another guy who saw the history there. Mm-hmm. He uh, an earlier book that he he uh, shepherded through is a very fascinating book about won the Pulitzer Prize, actually, about Napoleon's black general. Did anyone ever know Napoleon had a black general, hmm. very successful, who got caught up in politics at the very end and assassinated? Hmm. And he was the father of the Dumas, the writer. Ah, yeah. um, but anyways, you know, Rick saw that, too, and, and he was the guy that got it published. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Rick, both of them are really uh, to be thanked for the book because mm-hmm. it, it sort of r- runs counter to... Uh, to the politics of the, uh, the typical politics, I should say, mm-hmm. of certain elements of the gun publishing world. Well, yeah, I mean, it's important that objective history um, be put out there. Um, I think it's important for everyone. Yeah, and and the book lays out the good and the bad. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, as, I, as I point out in the author's note, you know, guns occupy either side of the spectrum. You know, a gun can save a life or take a life. Mm-hmm. One's good, one's bad. Who decides which one it is? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a, guns are complex. Uh, they're a complex issue mm-hmm. for society to deal with. 
So what uh, what's your next writing project? And I'm open to suggestions. People yeah. should feel free to go to my website, NathanGorenstein.com, and send me an email with a suggestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can find the guns of, both of John Moses Browning. I, I'm, I'm not sure. This one came up after I got some suggestions from friends about a, a Western, not a novel, but a book about the West. And that's how I ended up with Browning and Guns. Hmm. So I don't know. I'm looking around, and I, and I, I don't know yet. Uh, um, uh, it's, you know, it's a two or three or more years commitment. So, I mean, this mm-hmm. was three years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not quite sure what that's going to be yet. Mm-hmm. And I'll spell your name, uh, for listeners for when they look for your website, it's N-A-T-H-A-N. Yeah. Last name is G is in George, O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Dot com. I'm one of the few Nathan Gorensteins in the world, so you, you won't have trouble finding me. Okay. Okay. All right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, I'm, I'm great. I only suggest that people have gotten this far. I think they're interested, but it's, it's not just a book about guns. It's a book about the history of, of the modern world. It really is because mm-hmm. guns for good or ill play such a large role. In that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they definitely play a big role in, in the outcomes of, of battles and campaigns and wars. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Like the brick, uh, is it the, the the line about you know, airplanes are nothing without guns is from from a book written by one of the British engineers who worked on the Browning 30 caliber machine gun in the British Armaments Ministry. And he wrote his book because he felt that their contribution was being ignored. And he said, mm-hmm. Spitfires are nothing without our guns. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right, though. Yeah, he's right. I agree. So, I agree. Well, um, thank you. Thank you very much okay. for speaking. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate it. In the next episode, I speak with Jan Slimming about her book on her mother, who did code-breaking at Bletchley Park in World War II. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com, and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.